Good afternoon. So in the next half hour, I'm going to talk about targeted killing from a number of different perspectives, but the three important ones are its legality, its morality, and its effectiveness. The background to the talk is not only did I teach at the IDF School of Military Law, but during the course of my career in the IDF, Israel Defense Forces, in particular while serving as a legal advisor to the Gaza Strip, I was also involved in targeted killing decisions. And I will, during the course of the talk, in order to bring this home, if you will, give you a, spe a specific example, obviously with facts fudged, as to how the decision-making process actually works. By way of background, in the mid-90s, in response to growing Palestinian suicide bombing terrorist attacks, the government of Israel was forced to make a decision how to respond to suicide bombings. And there were a number of different theories put in place. I have to add one, sorry, one disclaimer. I don't represent anybody. I don't even represent my own wife. And so <laughs> this is my take on this entire um, situation. But that's it. So there are a number of different theories put out there in terms of how to respond to suicide bombings and Palestinian terrorism. And one of the decisions that was made was indeed to implement and articulate implement targeted killing. And during the course of the time from 94 to 97 that I served as legal advisor of the Gaza Strip was at the beginning of this process, which is why I was involved in it. So definitions are important in this conversation. One, what is targeted killing? If we're going to talk about it, we should define it. Targeted killing is a decision made as a final course of action to prevent an imminent terrorist attack. And because terms are important, I emphasize this idea of this imminent attack, meaning that the threat posed has to be now, not something amorphous. It can't be something like, you know, Gior is invited back to Oxford a year from now, and he, that's too amorphous. It has to be the sense of imminence. But on the assumption that many, if not all of you are lawyers, we could have a long discussion about imminence, and for the, pers from the, um, for the sake of this talk, an imminent threat is something that's about to occur. So one of the important questions is how do you prevent that particular imminent threat? And so that is, the, in essence, the ideology or philosophy behind target killing. It is, if you will, preemptive self-defense, or more correctly, aggressive preemptive self-defense. In many ways, in terms of its legal basis, it's predicated on Article 51 of the UN Charter, but I need to add, obviously, an aggressive articulation of Article 51 of the UN Charter. There is a long discussion, which we don't really have time for, in terms of what's the legal paradigm that we're in today, post-9-11 world. Is this criminal? Is this international law? Is this war? Is this something in the middle? So the, the um, Israeli Supreme Court has defined this as armed conflict short of war. We could also have a long conversation about what exactly armed conflict short of war means. For the sake of this conversation, what it means is it's neither criminal nor it's a war between states. It's somewhere in the middle. There's no doubt that targeted killing represents, manifests that armed conflict short of war probably more than any other op operational counterterrorism measure. In terms of its morality, so we could have a long discussion about, first of all, what morality in armed conflict means. And speaking frankly, if I would have been invited to this great university 20 years ago, nobody would have been talking about morality because it was not an inherent part of this post-night, this, this terrorism paradigm. So here's what morality means in this incredibly comp complicated paradigm of target killing. It means that you need to define who's a legitimate target, and in addition to that, you need to define when is that legitimate target a legitimate target. 
And the reason you do that from the perspective of morality and ethics is because, and I pardon the expression, you don't want to engage in a paradigm where you kill them all, where they're all legitimate targets. And the whole point of target killing from the perspective of morality is that you're engaged in, in eliminating a specific person who, based on intelligence information, poses an imminent threat now. Now, I have no doubt whatsoever that there are X number of people who, when they think about targeted killing, they inherently view it as immoral, and I respect that position, I understand that position. On the other hand, with all due respect to that position, the nation state absolutely has the obligation, responsibility to protect its citizens. On the other hand, it also has the obligation, responsibility to do so in such a way that it respects the individual civil rights of the other side. And so what you need to understand in the context of target killing is when done correctly, it's predicated on specific action against a specific person who poses a specific threat. And the importance of that is it minimizes, hopefully if done correctly, this idea of collateral damage, right? The killing of innocent people. So when I talk about morality ethics in the context of, of target killing, it means that I assume I accept the following. A, the target killing is necessary under certain conditions. B, it's legal when conducted in the context of a very specific person, person and purpose. And its morality is predicated on both of those. And the third issue, the third leg of it, if you will, is effectiveness. So before undertaking a targeted killing, one needs to ask oneself the following questions. To what end are we killing this person? And what are the ramifications of killing that specific person? So one needs to think here both tactically and strategically. So it's easy, I mean easy, I mean these are all god-awful decisions. But we need to ask ourselves, okay, if we prevent we kill this person and we've prevented a particular act of terrorism, does that have long-term ramifications? Maybe yes, maybe no. But because you always need to think worst-case scenario, it's always essential that you ask yourself, well, if you kill person A, but you also kill X number of innocent people, what are the ramifications of extended or large-scale collateral damage, and what are the negative repercussions? You have to take my word on this, and I can you know, show this to you empirically, that X number of target killings when there's widespread collateral damage invariably leads to second-generation terrorism, leads to people to commit acts of terrorism. So you always have to ask yourself, what's the blowback? So when done correctly, it's extremely specific. And I need to put here in parentheses, and this is to be very critical of, for instance, of the Obama administration's articulation of drone policy, which is the Israeli version of target killing. The Obama administration um, has come out with the following, that there has been no collateral damage during the Obama administration's implementation of drone policy. And Professor Waldron's facial response is exactly the correct one, which is like, it can't be. And they have come out with this for the following reason, because they say that when they conduct a drone policy attack, anybody in the milieu, whatever the hell milieu means, is a legitimate target because it is cold guilt by association. And so old people like me who've been involved in these decisions, when they hear that everybody in the milieu is a legitimate target, that from my perspective is not only immoral, but it's also illegal. In the same vein, I don't know how many of you read blogs, but there's a, um, an article this morning by, Gren, by Glenn Greenwald in Salon, S-A-L-O-N.com, in which it turns out the Obama administration is not only droning a target, but it's also doing a secondary drone on those who come to the rescue of the target. And that raises, again, from the perspective of international law, morality, effectiveness, widespread questions. All right. So let me give you an example of how this thing works. Three o'clock in the morning, the phone rings, and you know I answer it. And the commander asks me, um, "Are you awake?" And those of you, I don't know how many of you have served in the military, but if a commander at three o'clock in the morning asks you, "Are you awake?" the answer is yes. 
And he then tells me the following, that he's received a report from the intelligence community based on what the source told him, that a person who's entering his zone of combat poses an extraordinary and immediate danger to Israeli national security. So now let's work our way backward. The most important person in this entire conversation is the intelligence community case officer. He's the linchpin. Why is he or she the linchpin? Because they're the ones who've received information from a source. A source, a human source, is the one who provides information to the intelligence community saying that such and such is going to occur and such and such person is going to be responsible for that act. So you can't really discuss target killing without asking yourselves, who is the source? Who's providing this information? So I don't know in real life how many of you have worked in law enforcement, how many of you have have knowledge or actually have met with sources. But it's a long conversation because you need to ask yourself four very important questions about the source. One, how reliable is that source? And reliable as incredible. Two, how time relevant is that information? Did he give it a week ago, a month ago, a year ago? Three, how viable is the information? Viable as in terms of is it realistic, what he's saying? And four, is it corroborated? Because in the ideal, not always, but in the ideal, one wants to have two pieces of information. I make the cross not in the religious sense, but corroborated in the sense that you have two source, two independent sources who are providing you information. It's always important to note that you need to ask yourself about sources, whether or not they have an agenda. Whether or not the person they're ratting on, you know, they have some kind of a, a personal grudge against them, whether or not they have a personal history, whether information they've provided in the past has been effective, whether or not it was you know, grudge-based or um, based on actuality and reality. It's always obviously very important to ask, how does the source know what the source knows? And I can tell you, having been in the receiving end of, of these kinds of conversations in various capacities, you always want to know, A, who's the source? I, mean, I don't care about his name, but who is he? How does he know this? And when did he find out? And why did he find out? And that actually, those three questions tie in absolutely directly into this idea of morality, legality, and effectiveness. So he calls the intelligence officer. But note that here we're going to have at least three different levels of hearsay, right? Because the source calls the intelligence guy in Arabic, but not only is he speaking Arabic, he's speaking source Arabic. Again, I don't know how many of you have you know, first-hand experience with sources, but sources don't talk the way we talk. It's just a diff- whole different language. So Arabic and source Arabic calls the intelligence guy. The intelligence guy, lack of a better term, he's the linchpin because he translate this, translates this into operational language for the commander. He obviously is acquainted with the source because there's a reason the source is calling this particular case officer. And he needs to translate this into something that the commander can immediately act on. And again, I need to emphasize in the context of targeted killing that we're talking about decisions that need to be made now. So the commander gets all this information, operationalizes it, makes it relevant to his worldview in terms of his own paradigm. And then according to the idea of standing orders, the commander needs to call his legal advisor. At the end of the day, the call comes to me as the legal advisor of the Gaza Strip. Now, the commander, when he calls me, he knows that he needs to answer, he's going to answer a bunch of questions that I ask him. And in terms of how it's structured in the idea, if I say no, the guy's not going to be killed. And if I say yes, more likely than not, the guy will be killed. But note, it's the command, commander's decision, but again, in the context of how it's structured in the IDF, more likely than not, he'll obviously act in accordance with the legal advice, which is why he's calling. 
So I had worked out in advance, and this is important as a conversation, a criteria-based approach to targeted killing. And one of the things I, I think is important to take away from this is this idea of rational-based decision-making. Because the whole idea is to minimize, you know, a little bit of this. The idea is to emphasize criteria-based, if you will, a checklist. Because if you have a checklist and you have your questions that are ready to go, if you get answers, then you know how to plug it in and then to ask the follow-up questions. So the questions that I had worked out in advance when I would you know, get the phone call were the following. One, I wanted to know from the commander, are you in the field? Are you at home? Are you in your office? Are you there? And if you're there, are you the one who's going to be doing you know, this? Two, I wanted to know when was the last time your unit had engaged in a nighttime ambush? I don't know how many of you have ever served in the military, but you're going to have to take my word on this one. Nighttime ambush is totally different from daytime. Next, I want to know when was the last time the unit had fired at night. Again, nighttime firing, shooting is way different from daytime. Four, I wanted to know what exactly he was seeing, whether or not what he saw fit what the um, intelligence community had said. Next, I wanted to know what were the alternatives. Was it possible to detain the individual rather than to kill the individual. Obviously, it's much better to detain because if you detain, you can interrogate. Hard to interrogate somebody who's dead. So I wanted to know, was he detainable? I wanted to know, perhaps most importantly of all, what was the collateral damage? Could he see innocence, you know, innocent individuals in, in that zone of combat? Because the great fear in the context of target killings I mentioned earlier is that you're going to not only kill the individual who you've targeted as legitimate, but also, you know, who else is out there? I wanted to know what was his take on his conversation with the um, intelligence community case officer. Had he asked him these kinds of questions? Next, I wanted to know whether or not the unit had recently had disciplinary issues. Why disciplinary issues? Because a unit that has disciplinary issues means that the commander is spending much of his time disciplining rather than training, R disciplining rather than actual engagement. Also, a unit that has disciplinary issues means that it, you know, in real time you don't really know exactly how your soldiers will conduct themselves. And last but not least, but essential to the conversation, it was important for me to get a sense from him, the commander, how did he feel in terms of what he had been told versus what is he seeing. So in this particular paradigm, this particular situation, which I, again, I fudged the facts, obviously, the phone call was as follows. The, com the intelligence community had indicated to him that a person wearing blue jeans and blue pants, this time, you know, three in the morning, walking from area A to area B, carrying a bag in his right hand, and what is in the bag, and this is what's important, poses an immediate and grave danger to national security, the Israeli national security. So at three in the morning, you have no one to call. This is the reality of the situation. And so I obviously asked him, how much time do we have to make this decision? And the answer is we're talking here a couple of minutes. By the time that I'm giving this talk, by now we would have decided. And that's why this criteria-based approach was so absolutely important in order to minimize the subjective and enhance the objective. Not objective as in the, you know, the object, but objective in terms of the rational-based approach. So we ran through the questions. I get the answers. But what is important to emphasize is my assessment of his assessment. But now note the problems. One, this is in the day before you know, cell phones. So I, first of all, am not seeing what he's seeing. Two, I'm not seeing his body language. It's all, you know, phone, phone to phone. 
what I clearly hear in his voice, obviously, is enormous you know, tension and operational anxiety. I mean, it's an you know, inherent part of this entire conversation. And I wanted to hear from him whether he was convinced, whatever that means, that this guy was that guy. And if I was uncertain, or if he indicated that he was uncertain, then I would say no. Now, why would I say no? Let's work our way back. When I accepted the position to be the legal advisor to the Gaza Strip and in my subsequent writings over the past few years in American academia, I have suggested proposed the following. One, the targeted killings indeed are lawful. But, in the but here, there are many buts. One, that it's predicated on a narrow articulation of self-defense. Two, that this idea of morality is not just some vague and amorphous aspect of the decision-making, but is meant that it's serious. Because if you don't believe in morality in armed conflict, then you obviously enhance the number of, of uh, innocent individuals. Three, that we were fully aware of who this individual was, as much as we knew, and always asking ourselves, how will it play out in that person's community? And this idea of, this is, I'm not sure this is the correct term, and those who are more sensitive to these terms may have another suggestion. It's what I call cultural anthropology. It's essential in the decision-making process that you take into account how the other side will, res will respond to this, what will be their understanding of it. And you need to understand something about terrorism. The community from which terrorists come understand why targeted killings are conducted. They understand why drone policy is, a, is in effect. They also understand that when you kill a terrorist, they get it. But what they don't get is the collateral damage. And so that's why in the terms of the cultural anthropology, it was really essential that we really understand exactly how important is that person in the larger um, context. And four, absolutely have to be convinced that the individual posed, again, this sense of immediate, imminent danger. And that's why this idea of alternatives and seeking alternatives is so um, essential to the conversation. There are, of course, two other aspects of international law that are relevant to this conversation. One is proportionality, and the other is military necessity. So, by example, bless you, if we received an intelligence report that somebody tomorrow is planning on throwing a Molotov cocktail, that, under no circumstances, would be justification for conducting a target killing. And I put in parentheses, having had Molotov cocktails thrown at me, no, it's not particularly pleasant, but it's certainly not a reason to engage in a target killing. So in the context of proportionality, it's essential in the context of legality and morality that it be a significant enough threat to justify killing the individual. And the other aspect of international law that's absolutely essential to this is this idea of military necessity that the threat is so significant to state security that it justifies making, you know, asking ourselves whether or not that person is a justifiable candidate. And if he doesn't pose such a threat in the context of military necessity, then, you know, you immediately say no. So in this particular paradigm, this example, which obviously I'm fudging the facts, at the end of the day, I said no. So now we need to ask ourselves, why did I say no? I said no because I had you know, sufficient experience with this commander I don't think we were friends. We had a cordial working relationship, you know, a professional relationship. I felt that he was not convinced that this guy was that guy. 
based on that, and again, you know, been through this a number of times, based on that assessment and the fact that the way he was portraying what he was seeing, what, we are, what I had been told, I felt that I was, could not be convinced or was not convinced that there was a, an absolute one-to-one relationship between individual indicated by the intelligence community, his assessment of it, and my interpretation of that assessment. So I stand before you and I say, I don't know if I spared the life of some guy who was wrong place, wrong time, or some guy who was you know, um, really bad terrorist, or some guy just you know, poor schmo, because for a variety of complicated reasons, which I don't want to get into, at the time we didn't do after action reports. But now let's you know, fast forward and ask ourselves the following questions. What makes this so complicated beyond the obvious complication of saying yes to the killing of somebody? What makes it so complicated is that the nation state that's engaged in targeted killing drone policy must undertake the following difficult, quote-unquote, assignments. One, you have to narrowly define self-defense. Easy said, it's easy to say, narrowly define self-defense. Take my word for this one, it's exceptionally difficult. Two, you have to be locked in and married to the idea of morality in armed conflict. Three, you have to have a pretty narrow definition of what's a legitimate target and when is that legitimate target a legitimate target. Four, you have to understand what it means to kill somebody, I mean, in terms of how it plays itself out. Next, you have to always be sensitive to how the court of international opinion plays itself out. You know, we're not operating in a vacuum. The world has things to say about all these kinds of events. You always have to ask yourselves, impact local community. You have to ask yourself, how will your own nation state respond to this? And finally, you have to ask yourself, from the, pers- from the perspective of the decision maker, what I call the dilemma of the decision maker, is the paradigm that you have created, that you have articulated and implemented, whether indeed it is in conformity with domestic law, international law, and again, I repeat myself deliberately, this idea of morality in armed conflict. Before I turn the podium over to Professor Waldron, you need, I want to finish with the following, exactly in the half hour of this talk. It would be trying to say that these decisions are complicated. That's an obvious. What complicates the complication is the following. That when you think long and hard about international law, not state-state, but state-non-state, because that's the paradigm we're in, Many of these terms have been insufficiently defined. I don't want to say that we're making up as we go along, but we're making up as we go along. And that means that those of us in my former life who are engaged not in international law, but in operational international law, are confronted with the following difficulties. There are, in many ways, no pre-existing paradigms. There are, in many ways, no existing pre-existing rules to the game. So on the one hand, the state absolutely is engaged in combat, in conflict with the other side. But it has to be, must be, done in such a way that you at all times, in terms of yourself, reflect respect for the law and for morality. Because at the end of the day, if you don't do it that way, then you've lost your sense of morality, you've lost your sense of law, and in many ways, you've lost what you are fighting for. On that note, Professor Walden. Thank you, Professor Giora. That's um, 
hugely important in a discussion like this to have a sense of what is actually involved in the decision-making process and in the various nodes of review and accountability in the decision-making process and to have it in a human sense. And so I much appreciate what we have learned from uh, Amos today about the um, experience he has had and the experience generally um, in Israel and the Israeli Defense Forces of working with this tactic in the war against terrorism. I'm going to open things up just a little bit beyond the parameters of the presentation because I think there are quite significant differences between the use of targeted killing by the Israeli Defense Force, particularly the kind of targeting, uh, targeted killing that has just been spoken about, and the use of targeted killing by the United States um, in its operations, uh, particularly in Afghanistan and um, in Pakistan. Um, it's partly a matter of numbers, and the numbers are very considerable, particularly under the Obama administration. We Estimates vary because there is no official accounting of numbers, but probably the best numbers I've seen are an excellent article by my NYU colleague Philip Olston in the Harvard National Security Journal for 2011, and he figures around 1,500 militants targeted and killed uh, by American drone attacks in Pakistan since 2004. That's a very, very high number, um, plus something like a um, collateral death rate of innocent civilians and non-combatants of around anything between 5 and 17% on top of that, um, including um, under the Obama administration. So the numbers are different. As far as we know, the process is a little bit different. We have just been talking about... Um, an IDF unit is the Israeli Armed Forces, subject to military discipline, but subject in addition to um, consultation and definitive review by a, a legal officer working within the Armed Forces, uh, attacking uh, somebody who has been identified as engaged in imminent um, participation in an attack. Somewhat different when you imagine um, some of the US drone attacks, where you have on the one hand the maintenance of a death list of operatives of Al-Qaeda and some other uh, organizations. You have the attack itself being carried out sometimes by people who are not subject to military discipline, like CIA operatives operating either as special forces or operating simply using a joystick in a, in a uh, trailer in Nevada or somewhere like that. Um, and as far as I know, with much less rigorous review by um, judge advocates or equivalents of the role that Professor Giora played and that he outlined for us today. So a different process. Um, we also have to worry about different criteria used in targeting. In what he has written on this, as well as in what he said today, Amos has spoken very, very emphatically about the importance of criteria. Not just judging the reliability of source, but using proper moral and legally respectable criteria 
for determining targeting, um, de targeting decisions. And in, in today's discussion, we talked mostly about people who are directly and immediately involved in the immediate preparation or the immediate planning or the immediate carrying out of particular um, terrorist attacks. Now, that is somewhat different from an approach that also uses targeted killing as a way of decapitating the high structure of terrorist organizations, the high command structures, the people who are involved in various capacities such as strategic planning as opposed to tactical planning, people who are involved in financing, people who are involved in incitement. The case I have in mind is the killing of Anwar al-Olaki uh, recently, I think last September, wasn't it, uh, who was a U.S. citizen killed in, yeah. in Yemen, uh, who was a preacher, um, but he certainly was involved. He was a very bad person. He was certainly involved in um, al-Qaeda um, operations, but he wasn't involved in any particular operation. He was involved, as it were, in wholesale rather than retail uh, planning and incitement. Uh, of armed attacks. Significant case for another reason. It was uh, represented uh, one in uh, instance in which judicial review of targeting decisions was um, attempted by uh, the man's father and by um, uh, various organizations in the United States and it was dismissed both on grounds of that this was a political question not subject to judicial review and on the rather uh, astonishing ground that the man's father had no standing uh, to question his son's name on a uh, CIA death list. So when you are killing people like um, Anwar al-Olaki, you are not killing somebody who is immediately involved in that. You are, as we're killing this man because of his status in, in general uh, planning and so on. And um, I, I don't think that... Um, Amos would disagree with me that Israel has engaged in such attacks um, as well, occasionally against um, high operatives um, in Hamas. And um, it does seem to me that in our thinking about this, we should reflect on the differences in the criteria that will have to be used in cases where you are um, killing somebody who is immediately involved in a particular operation and cases where you are killing somebody because of their background presence uh, in, in the structure. They raise some of the same issues, they raise some different, some different issues. The issue of collateral damage, of, uh, collateral damage, what we used to call killing uh, innocent civilians. The issue of killing innocent civilians is of course important, and I don't want to denigrate that some, uh, the importance when I say that the primary issue, the primary issue to be discussed is the legitimacy of targeted, targeted um, killing um, itself. And that issue has to be, I think, um, understood in exactly the terms that Professor Giora mentioned in terms of its necessity. Notice that necessity is going to be playing two roles here. Military necessity is a very narrow concept. It's a use in bello concept. It refers to particular armed operations, particular bombardments, particular killings. If you have been engaged, for example, in, um, in taking a defended position and you have seized the defended position, one of the reasons why you can't continue to fire on it is the firing has ceased to be militarily necessary. Yeah. Military necessity does not itself justify the, re the recourse to arms. 
But in relation to self-defense, one might want to develop a notion of necessity, particularly when, and um, Professor Giora didn't exactly talk about this at length, although he suggested that we could, if we like, have a long seminar on the meaning of imminence for these purposes. We could have a long seminar on the meaning of necessity, particularly with regard to the decapitation version of targeted killing. So the killing of uh, Anwar al-Olaki is necessary. Well, necessary for what? Necessary as a sort of integral part of the only strategy we happen to be working with at the moment. Necessary because we can't think what else to do with these guys. If we were working within the, the confines of the particular person about to take part in a particular armed operation, we could work with necessity. But necessity becomes a much more elastic concept. It certainly doesn't mean absolutely indispensable. Everybody who is involved in large-scale counter-terrorist operations will tell you that the most necessary thing is disruption of finance and resources and communications. <coughs> Killing is really a, a small element of what's involved. So necessary t tends to waver in between something like an indispensable part of strategy and a rather good idea, folk de mieux, and certainly the, uh, the law and the morality of armed conflict would frown a little bit on any introduction of elasticity into the picture. I think it is important to do exactly what Professor Giora suggested, which is as well as give us a sense of what is involved in these particular processes, to help us, help us as citizens of countries that may be involved in this directly or indirectly, help us reflect upon the morality, and it's because the law is in flux on this, and we are, as you said, making, making it up as we go along, reflect a little bit on the morality and the legality of these operations in a way that just stands back a little bit from the particular um, enthusiasm we might have felt for the killing of Osama bin Laden or the particular um, terrified uh, response to an Im a immediately imminent attack. So I wanted just to finish by referring to perhaps three areas where it is worth doing some reflection. One is the sense that targeted killing is uncomfortably close, particularly in the decapitation model that I have mentioned, uncomfortably close to assassination and to resort to assassination as a means. I'm not an international lawyer, although I prattle on about it a little bit, but I'm not sure that when people talked about uh, uh, the conditions for self-defense under Article 51 of the United Nations Charter, they had in mind assassination. Uh, that in these circumstances, assassination of leaders of opposing forces would be appropriate. So uh, certainly what the United States is conducting is partly a campaign of assassination. Uh, that's not to use assassination ne necessarily with question-begging negative associations, but it's a morally dubious practice, and we should, as it were, step back and think about as opposed to what you might think of either as the depersonalized or indiscriminate killing involved in regular uh, operations between rival armed forces where you don't know the name of the person that you're killing. So that's one thing to reflect on, whether we actually want to turn our soldiers into assassins, <coughs> even well-reviewed and well-disciplined and well-controlled assassins, 
whether we want, in fact, to introduce assassination as a major policy into our um, law enforcement or military models. And the second thing to reflect upon a little bit is the clash or the face-off between a law enforcement model of a response to um, terrorism and a military model of a response to terrorism. Targeted killing is usually defended under the military model. The persons who are killed are combatants, are lawful combatants usually, or they are civilians who are taking a direct part in hostilities. We use the logic of the military model. But the naming of the person does sound and feel an awful lot like the law enforcement model. And certainly some of the criteria that we use, that I know Israel has used since that uh, remarkable decision in 2006 um, by, by the Israeli Supreme Court, uh, that the, the possibility of capturing <coughs> the, the targeted person has to, be, has to be exhausted before, or impossible, before the targeting can take place. That's not the sort of the, the giving quarter aspect of capture that takes place in military operations, but it's a law enforcement model. So are we in danger of blurring the law enforcement model and if we are, we should be perhaps just a little bit more worried than some of us have been about the possibility of this infecting our law enforcement approach generally. We know that in, that in some United States killings in <coughs> Afghanistan, people have been targeted because they are involved both in terrorist operations and in the drug trade. People have talked about the use of targeted killing in the drug trade on the Mexican-American border. Uh, we are worried, some of us, that there is a danger that something which is being legitimized primarily with regard to the military model is sufficiently close, nevertheless, to the, to the um, law enforcement model that it might be, in general, uh, become a last resort, or maybe a not-so-last resort, in intractable cases of um, in, intractable cases which properly fall within the law enforcement paradigm. And the last thing to remember is we have to be very careful, um, and I know there wasn't time for Professor Giora to spend a lot of explanation on this, we have to be very careful with the idea that each society or the state has an obligation to protect society, and this is primarily being carried out and undertaken in relation to that operation and that obligation. The obligation to protect society is something which applies to the armed forces and to the police forces and to a certain extent to the courts and to the law generally. So we have to be very careful about not using that phrase in a very, very cavalier way. Yeah? Because in, certainly in law enforcement operations, even though there is a paramount obligation to protect society and members of society from attack, it would be unthinkable or one hopes it would be unthinkable to say that this obligation uh, justified killing. Certainly it is true that occasionally police snipers in hostage situations, in criminal situations, do have to uh, shoot a person for the defense of others. But that is massively exceptional. It is always accompanied by proper inquiry. And um, both in Israel and, and uh, in the United Kingdom and in the United States, and the controls that we have on the use of force in those circumstances um, indicate that we should, take, we should be very, very uneasy, I think, about introducing this model into, um, into ordinary law enforcement.
I, I mean, I say that, and this is the last thing I'll say. I say that without any confidence that we can actually draw bright lines here. That's part of the difficulty. We are making it up as we go along. We are revising military doctrine, military law, laws of armed conflict, and the morality of armed conflict to reflect the different kinds of conflict that we're facing. But I hope these things, these opportunities for reflection will be taken. Thank you. Thank you.